Hello and welcome to the Right on Crime podcast series featuring experts from our Correctional Leadership Network. I'm your host, Scott Payton, former law enforcement, probation and parole officer, and correctional director at Right on Crime. In August of 2022, the prison population in Mississippi hit a high of more than 18,000, and if that upward trend continues, it could cost Mississippi taxpayers more than $100 million next year. As prisons fill up, remember, 95% of all those incarcerated will eventually be released. So how do we want them to return to our communities? That work begins behind bars, and the Mississippi Department of Corrections is making headlines with innovative efforts under the leadership of MDOC Commissioner Burl Kane. Thank you, Commissioner Kane, for joining us at Right on Crime. Let me share some highlights from your accomplished career that spans over four decades, and then we'll get started. Commissioner Kane retired from the Louisiana Department of Corrections after leading an evolution of change at the Louisiana State Penitentiary, once known as the bloodiest prison in America. Under his 21 years of leadership, Louisiana State Penitentiary became one of the safest, most secure, and progressive maximum security prisons in the nation. Commissioner Kane serves as CEO and founder of the Global Prison Seminaries Foundation, a nonprofit organization that promotes positive changing of prison culture through theological education programs in prisons throughout the United States and internationally. Prison seminary model programs now exist in 17 states, including Mississippi. Lastly, Commissioner Kane is the married father of three children. He is a recipient of the Salvation Army's Others Award, the 2016 Prison Fellowship Servant of Hope Honoree, the American Correctional Association's ER CAS Award for Excellence in Corrections, NAAWS's 2003 Warden of the Year, and the 2003 Recognition of Outstanding Service in Prison Ministry at Wheaton College's Billy Graham Center. And I could go on and on, but for the interest of time, we will hop straight into our questions. Mr. Commissioner, you took over as Commissioner of MDOC in 2020. You faced COVID, budget issues, and staffing shortages, just to name a few. Not an easy time to start your new job. What was one of your biggest challenges in starting your new position? You just named them. <laughs> I appreciate that. No, it was really uh, to rebuild a system that had really pretty much crashed and uh, with a terrible riot when the governor came into office in uh, 2000. And so my job was to come here and really try to bring innovation to it and change the culture and move it forward and really and truly kind of re repeat what we did at Angola, which was about the same thing. And I felt about the same way when I got here that I was in the same situation as my initial days at Angola. So it's been a, 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 an era of change and move forward, and that's what we're trying to do as we, as we talk today. That sounds great. Um, for the moment, Mississippi leads the nation with the highest rate of incarceration. While you don't control the front door to the prison, you are investing in some innovative programming for their eventual release. Tell us what you're doing to ensure someone leaves prison better off than when they came in. Well, let's back up to talk about Mississippi being the highest incarcerated nation in the state. And so, I mean, state in the nation. And so what I might say to that would be maybe we're the safest state in the nation because I, like many of my peers, 
feel like for sure that the prisoners, that the violent people and the people committing crime need to be in prison, not on the street. But the trend has been without having grand juries, without having uh, district attorneys that, that do bail and so forth, that we let too many people go. And prisoners are like children a little bit. If we don't discipline at the front end with our kids, then they'll kind of get away from us as they grow on up. And so it's the same with prisoners. If you break in a law of juveniles and so forth and first offenders and you don't you just slap, keep slapping the hand, then they just keep on building more and more bad behavior. So prison may not be as bad as some people want to make it sound as long as it's proper. And the reason is corrections means correct deviant behavior. It doesn't mean lock and feed and torture and torment. And so the struggles we work for here in Mississippi, and it's really based on the seminary model and the, and the same thing we did at Angola was we have to have education programs, but we have to have education training that gets you a job. And we have to focus on the short-term inmates that are getting out to be, so, be sure they're employable. Now, it's not soft skill that get you a job. It's hard skill to get you a job. Can, do you have, are you a welder? Are you a plumber? Are you a pipe fitter? What can you do really so that you can walk right out of here with a job? And also to have that job waiting for you, working with probation parole to be sure you do have the job, to be sure you stay on the job and be sure they drug test you and you keep the job so we stop the revolving door. Then we turn around the way prisons operate and we really change people's lives so they can make it on the street, and then we'll see our population start to drop. That's where I think we fail. I don't think we do a really good job of getting people ready to reenter society. We focus too much on soft skills. I, I definitely agree with you on your on your on all of your comments, and especially on on, on the first one. Um, we do have a need for prisons and um, public safety. Uh, is paramount and that any policy changes, any type of reform uh, most certainly must view must be viewed through the lens of, of public safety and, and the rights of, of victims and keeping our communities safe. Um, just to, to, to kind of drill in a little bit, um, when you talk about the programming and the welding, um, in Angola, you, you started using lifers um, and training them um, to not only teach the, the technical skills, but also teach um, more of the formation skills, the, the heart skills, the things that are going to help people change behaviors. Um, is this something you've started in Mississippi? And, and if you want to explain a little more of, of how that works. We do. We have a prison seminary here in Mississippi for men and women. We started that in 2004, but they never let it you know, materialized because they didn't allow the inmates. We got into this culture. One inmate can't have any authority over another. But so we would do that ourselves. But meanwhile, we sit here and watch the gangs have all kind of authority one over the other. And but we said, oh, we can't do that because we'll be a gang. Well, when you go to church, the preacher, the gang leader, and you're in the church, you're in the gang. So we got to get it. We got to really come to grips with what we're doing. In Mississippi, they never came to grips with that. So what we do is we have our seminaries are producing moral people, and they're doing churches and doing whatever they do, be Muslim, be non-denominational, be whatever, we don't care. 
but they formed groups in order to positive and good, and we combat the gangs and get rid of the gangs. There were no gangs at Angola when I left. The gang population in Mississippi was 6,500 when I got here. We're about 800 now. So the first thing we got to do is clean it up and get rid of the gangs or get them so diminished that we'll that they're become ineffective because they cause all the chaos in the prison. And so we've done that, and you have to. There's certain ways you got to do it, and that's what. I think I'm good at because I'm not going to have any gangs here. I don't think in another two years and I'm going to be rid of them, but I've created new gangs for people to belong to that are positive and good. And so that's how you do it. But part of this is school. Now let me mention this. The inmates themselves are the greatest resource the prison has. We can't afford to hire enough teachers or enough mentors, moral mentors and so forth because we just couldn't afford it. It would blow the bank. Therefore, we have to use the inmates as moral mentors and as teachers. And so what we're doing, I'm working with Pepperdine and Baylor now because in two years we'll have a research project come out that's going to show that all these skills and trades I'm talking about is going to be taught by inmates who are certified, ASE certified for automotive service excellence. That's the that's patch you see on the shoulder when you go to the car dealer for the mechanic and NCCER certifications for other hard skills. And so these are going to be inmate teachers that's going to be teaching other inmates in class skills and trade. Certainly, I want the, the prisoners with long sentences to be the teachers because that gives them purpose in life, lets them do the long sentence, and lets them have meaning to their life. But then they're proficient teachers to teach the short-termers how to come on and learn this skill and then get out of prison and have this job. Then he kind of lives his life through their success, gives him purpose, makes him be able to do the time better, and uh, then more actually to get out himself. So that's what we're doing here, and that's what we're doing in Mississippi. And so we actually have a staff meeting today to see how many schools we have started. We have about 100 teachers lined up that's going to be teaching these different skills and trades. And we'll have then probably if you have 10 in each class, you'll have 1,000 students. We're going to release about 3,000 every six months, and about half of them is going to need to have some sort of skill or trade. So we try to meet that need and focus on the short-termers or one year out so they can have the job. Does that make sense? It makes sense to me. I, I've, and I've seen it firsthand in Angola, and that program is still – moving and, and going strong with, with single-digit recidivism rates. So um, a, a lot of lot of great things happening and um, and, and definitely sparked and, and, and created at, at when you were warden there in, in Louisiana. Uh, one more thing on, yes, that, on that topic, because I can teach you the, the skills to get the job, but we did I did kind of skip over the moral component, and that's the one you mentioned, because in doing this at the same time, we do have to have moral mentors that, that are inmates, one inmate teaching other inmates anger management. That's effective. That's way more effective than any other. Then living in the same dorm with your teacher, that means that evening or night, you can go ask him, well, what about this well, and when I laid this bead this way? What, how did that work, and so forth. So then they communicate you know, on into the evening and so forth, and violence just goes away because they're focused on positive things to get them out. So the moral mentors are important too, and that many times are the seminary graduates, and we do have those seminaries now in 23 states, and so because people realize that it does work to bring about moral rehabilitation, then you kick out violence when you have morality. 
and then you have people who don't return to prison because who is a criminal? He's an immoral person that steals your lawnmower. He's selfish. He's a bully many times, but he cares about himself more than anybody else. He's self-indulgent. So to teach him to give back and share with others is part of this correct and deviant behavior. And it's essential that it be done by other inmates because they're more effective because they live with them all the time. I, I certainly agree with you there, Mr. Commissioner. Um, we, we mentioned right at the, the, the onset of the, the podcast that the, the issues that, that you face with, with COVID, um, staffing shortage. Do, do you feel that lawmakers and other stakeholders understand the challenges that you face at MDOC? And then how do you talk to others about the investments that you're doing, the, the ones you just mentioned, um, you know, forming inmates to, to be mentors, to be teachers, um, and, and how does this ultimately impact public safety? Politicians don't want to waste money. They do many times, but they don't want to, but they don't want me to. So what happens is when I have these programs with inmate teachers and I have these programs with inmate being moral mentors and using inmates as a resource, then they feel like that we're saving money. So then they've been more apt to give us more money to pay for these programs because these programs are going to reduce recidivism. And if we can prove that, and that's why we have Pepperdine and Baylor here to see that we reduce recidivism, then we just save money. Now, that's what they want to see and hear. So then they will support that program. So we as prison administrators have to really watch out that we don't waste the money, that we use it wisely, and we defend our programs. But we have the program. We just don't lock and feed. And that's the situation we had in Mississippi. There were really no programs. They just were sitting here doing nothing. We set aside a million dollars this year to start to pay the inmates the teachers and to start pay the students just a tiny little bit, you know, 30 cents an hour is $50 a month. Well, that's a lot of money to go to the store and the canteen and so forth. So that's what we're doing. We're giving back. We get that money through the inmate welfare fund. And so part of the way we cut the, the gang, people say, oh, you shouldn't have done it, but we should have done it because they were smuggling in tobacco so much that we started smoking again. Okay, well, so what we did is we made $1.2 million a year off cigarettes, and you can just say that the gang was making that much money off cigarettes. So we took their economy away from them. So that's one way we cut the gang, hurt the gang. So you just got to fight fire with how fire many times, and that's kind of what we did study, with the cigarettes. Uh, how far, we then made how far that along is that? Million, and that's where we got to a million dollars to pay the inmates from the tobacco. So see, we didn't it didn't cost the state any money to start paying inmates to have them working. In regards to the Pepperdine study, um, Mr. Commissioner, how, how long or how far along is that study, and, and when do you expect to have something from them? We just raised the money. I was in California about a month ago. We raised a million three hundred thousand dollars to pay for the research from the private sector. And so that research has just started in October in uh, the preliminary part of it. And so it will take two years, but it'll take me two years to have all these schools in operation before we really start to see the results. We'll get preliminary results in a, you know six to eight months, but two years the research will be completed, and that's the length of the program. We'll also plan to do a documentary to show, like we did at Angola, how it really worked 
and how what we're really doing. And this is really following the Angola model that we set up there that did work with reentry court and so forth. Yeah, those documentaries done at Angola um, um, are, have definitely been effective and, and, and brought a um, different perspective uh, for people to see what, what actually goes on inside the prison walls. As head of MDOC, do you feel the corrections perspective has given its due weight during policy debates under the Dome and Jackson at the Capitol when you compare your, your input uh, to, to those of law enforcement and prosecutors when it comes to policies that are going to affect how you run uh, your agency? It does. And I, and I think that we're at a new era in Mississippi where we have great support from our legislators, our governor, our lieutenant governor, and all the powers that be as far as corrections because they feel like that it's positive, that we're not wasting the money that they see in results. But also we explain it as a total package of criminal justice reform for criminal justice in Mississippi. In other words, it takes the policeman on the street and the court itself and then us ourselves to try to change their lives and turn them around to keep Mississippi safe. So it's all about safety and our citizens being safe and cut out all this violence we see raining across the, the country. And so we have to all be one and all for one, one for all. So it's not just correction, it's law enforcement as well and the court system as well. We're all three partners, work together. Our legislature is buying that and they like that. I definitely agree there too. I think the legislature has the will to, um, to to move things forward and to make sure that that Mississippi is safe and that the citizens can can enjoy the great state of Mississippi um, without fear. Uh, also, like uh, when, when I was at your office a few weeks ago, uh, there was a big plaque on the wall that says "Provide and Promote Public Safety." So uh, I, I think through these programming and and the the changes that you're bringing to Mississippi. Uh, definitely living up to that motto uh, that MDOC has with provide and promote public safety. At, at that same meeting that I was at, um, you mentioned that some of the inmates in the work release program are making more per hour than your correctional officers. This year, you were able to, to talk Mississippi lawmakers into raising salaries, but like corrections departments across the nation, you're still short-staffed. What are the safety consequences and you mentioned some of the solutions, but what are some other solutions for MDOC to address this, this short-staffed uh, corrections department? Well, I think that our personnel board realizes that we have to pay adequately to, to do this and, and be competitive in the, in the job fields that are, that are at our level. And so we are moving salaries up. We are hiring more people. And we're trying to stay competitive with the other states that are in our, our neighbors. And so we're looking to see that we do pay more. We're paying overtime and uh, we're staffing up better, but we're training better, getting better equipment and, uh, and spending a lot of time on training and effort so we're more effective. Also, you know, being in innovative as far as security and who goes outside the fence and so forth and our classification departments being pretty much revamped. And uh, so we're, we're just doing a whole lot of things to have a safe prison. But the thing that makes it safest of all is get these inmates to busy and give them something to do because they want to work. They want to be involved. They don't want to just lay around all the time. They want to be in school. They want to study. 
And so we're working really hard to do that, moving forward with video visiting and with the tablets and so forth, like everybody else is. So it's just stay busy. Let's just get busy. Let's work. Let's get well. Let's don't come back to prison, but let's find them a job. Let's equip them for employment on the outside, and let's do the soft skills. But the other thing we have to do is we really have to face that we have a massive mental health issues in our prisons, and we also have alcohol and drug issues. So we're working really hard uh, to expand those 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 uh, processes and all to to combat addiction, and so that's a real problem for us. But we're working to do that, and uh, successfully, I feel, and that's another thing that's right on the front burner with us. Yes, that, that is a um, a huge issue um, facing um, our, our nation in in, in general. Mr. Commissioner, we have just a few minutes left. I, I know you're an optimistic man. I, I hear it in, in, in your responses today. Uh, what are your hopes for the future of corrections in Mississippi? And then what can we do, what can Mississippians do to help promote public safety in their communities? Well, my goal is to have the recidivism in the teens. And uh, I can do that if I have positive, strong mental health programs and if I have strong addiction programs. And we follow, we set up one of the Betty Ford type programs and it was very successful with 100% succeeding, no dirty drug tests through the whole program and it's lasting six months. So that's kind of the pilot that we're trying to follow here and also being sure that all our clinicians are certified and so forth so that we be in compliance with the Justice Department and run a constitutional prison. Also, so that we get our prison all of them ACA accredited, and most of them are now, and we're moving forward with parchment, and uh, we hope to go before the board in April. Well, it's going to be in March. I well, it's going to be at the ACA convention, the winter conference. I'm going to get my dates right. It's going to be at the end of January. So we're going to try to get our certification for parchment there and be accredited. So those things are important because it, it establishes pride with the staff, and the inmates realize that we run a constitutional prison and they have better conditions of confinement. So we have to do that, and we have to repair these old prisons and get them back in really good shape so that we can have prisons safely and, and uh, comfortably. So those are the things we're doing in Mississippi, and that's what my hopes are. So it's a gamut of across the board, you know, just tightening it up, fixing it up, cleaning it up. But the most important thing is busy inmates, who are doing constructive work, learning skills and trades, becoming employable, and so that our probation pro programs are really strong, so that they supervise well, and we don't have all these violators that come back to jail and so forth. All those are failures. We have to accept that we fail really bad when they come back. And I'll just, lay, just say this one thing that makes me passionate about that. Secretary LeBlanc in Louisiana and I, we were doing an execution at the time when I was a warden there, and he was a warden as well. And it, we were executing a guy that had been in our prison. And so he had gotten out and committed murder, and so there he was. And so I remember after that night after we did the execution, he and I sit there and committed ourselves that we could do a better job, that we had totally failed. Somebody was in the grave because of our failure. And that's what caused me to be passionate about really changing inmates' lives and it was that night, and his too, because as you know, Louisiana's continued on after I left. He'd worked really hard to change the culture there and worked on reentry. 
And that's what drives you. When you really realize is, is being in the prison business, we affect life and death matters. We just need to take it really serious and do everything in our power to successfully keep that person from committing another crime when he gets out of our prisons. I, I certainly agree, Mr. Commissioner. And that's the purpose of the Correctional Leadership Network is to have your voice amplified to show people what's going on behind the bars. It's not simply, as you mentioned several times, uh, of locking locking them up, feeding them, and then let them letting them out. It's addressing the root causes. It's tackling all the issues that you've mentioned um, and, and trying to prevent um, individuals from coming back into the system. So um, uh, we appreciate you taking the time today uh, for joining us on our third installment of the correctional leadership at, at Right on Crime. Uh, thank you again, Mr. Commissioner. And for those listening today, follow the links to find out more about these issues and how conservative criminal justice reform can make a difference by visiting our website at www.rightoncrime.com. Oh.